Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power. Every individual's actions matter in preserving resources. Join the ripple effect to build a more resilient water future. Learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us wherever you're listening in Southern California, nationally or around the world on the LAist app. Coming up next hour, we're going to talk about being a godparent. What's involved in that? More and more godparents are a secular uh, facet of American culture, not necessarily linked to church affiliation or religious views about what a godparent is supposed to do in raising someone with religious principles. But we'll talk instead about the ways our listeners have interacted with the notion of being a godparent or having a godparent. That's next hour here on Air Talk. But we begin with the announcement by Tesla. It's recalling nearly all the vehicles it sold in the U.S. That's more than 2 million. They'll be updating software and attempting to fix a defective system that's supposed to ensure drivers are paying attention when they use the autopilot feature. Joining us to talk about it is Jack Ewing, who covers the auto industry for the New York Times. Jack, thank you for joining us today. I know this has been a a sort of a long saga that's been playing out involving federal investigators. So what is this the culmination of? Well, there's been an investigation by the regulators that's been going on for some years. Uh, There's been uh, allegations, accusations for a long time that uh, the autopilot software is is dangerous. What this uh, latest, what the recall does, what it's addressing is uh, the criticism that it's too easy for uh, drivers to, in effect, kind of hack the system and use it in places where it's not designed. In other words, on city streets uh, where uh, it, it's not really supposed to be uh, managing the car, where the driver's supposed to be paying attention. And what are some of the fixes that Tesla has tried to enact to this point? Well, I'm, I'm not the expert on that, to be honest. Um, I, I know that uh, they have been resisting. There's been a long uh, dialogue with uh, the regulators about this. There have been a numerous over-the-air updates, but obviously those have not been enough to satisfy uh, the regulators so far. The recall covers models Y, S, 3, and X produced between early October 2012 and December 7th of this year. So an update has been sent to certain affected vehicles uh, so far this week. Others are getting it later. Um, Are cars going to have to actually um, go in anywhere to be serviced, or is all this going to be done remotely? This will all be done remotely. And uh, so I, I think for the drivers, for the owners of Tesla, it won't be a huge inconvenience. And I think for Tesla, it also won't be a huge expense. I think for Tesla, the bigger risk is just that it's a it's a blow to the company's image. Uh, and uh, its image has already been under fire because of some of the recent statements by Elon Musk. It's, it's not a, a 
it's not a good thing for Tesla overall. Uh, we're talking with Jack Ewing, who covers the auto industry for the New York Times. Also with us is Carnegie Mellon University professor Philip Copeman, who has been working on self-driving car safety for two and a half decades. Professor Copeman, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, and your thoughts about what's involved here with Tesla making these updates. Does does this, from what you understand, inhibit the functionality of autopilot at all? Well, it depends what you mean by inhibit. It, it's supposed to inhibit the unsafe operation of autopilot. There's rampant misuse of, of people using it in areas that it's not supposed to be used in. There, it's very common to see drivers not paying the attention they should. And this recall is supposed to curtail that to a degree by limiting the places it can be used to places it's supposed to be used. And uh, hopefully that will prevent some of the crashes we've seen. There was just news that yet another person died because they ran underneath a semi-truck that was crossing the road. You're not supposed to use autopilot there. But people use autopilot in places they're not supposed to all the time. So the recall mentions some geographic limits and it mentions some more effective intervention of the drivers not paying attention. The question is, will this be a ba another baby step like we've seen in the past, or are they going to get serious about it this time? And just to clarify, so the vehicle um, using location, it, it's going to the vehicle. If someone is driving on on a street where there's cross traffic, they wouldn't be able to engage autopilot because the vehicle knows it's not driving on a freeway. Is for example, is is that how this would work? Well, that's what we're promised in the recall. It remains to be seen how aggressive that will be. Uh, it may be that it just limits it on city streets or on rural roads. Uh, you know, we don't know how restrictive that's going to be, but the, the recall promises at least some motion so that people won't be able to engage it on winding country roads full of driveways. But, you know, I, I don't know where the cutoff is going to be. The, the recall notice is very nonspecific. It will be almost impossible to know whether Tesla's done what they promised. It just says, we're going to get better in these areas, but we don't know how much better, and we don't know the specifics. Well, isn't it important, though, for Tesla drivers to know what the limitations, new limitations on autopilot are going to be so they're not surprised by it while they're driving around? I I would think so. Um, but the, the recall notice doesn't really tell us what the changes are going to be. They just promise improvement in some areas, which is kind of unusual. Because a typical recall notice says, here's the problem, here's the fix. And and when, when you read it, you can say, all right, I know what this fix is going to do. I'm going to be able to tell whether the fix worked or not. And, and this one is pretty hand-wavy, which is unusual for recall notice and, and frankly kind of disappointing. Love to hear from Tesla drivers your thoughts about it. If you're someone who uses autopilot with your car, your thoughts about uh, some of the the collisions that we've seen where people have been using autopilot in situations where uh, it's not recommended. In fact, people are told not to use it in some of those risky situations. What you would like to see in this update, if anything, and about what degree of usefulness or risk you feel when you use autopilot. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. 
please include your location and your first name. We appreciate it very, very much. But I'd love to hear, Tesla owners, what you think about this. Uh, Professor Copeman, uh, I, I, I also wonder about the um, other manufacturers who use anything similar. Are, are there other vehicles that use something that's pretty close to what Autopilot does? I mean, obviously, there's adaptive cruise control, but this goes significantly further. So is, is there, are there any other manufacturers that might also have to update their technology? Uh, no, not. Well, first of all, this recall only co- um, affects Teslas. But more importantly, the other manufacturers who do very advanced uh, driving automation features already do geofencing. They already limit operation to specific mapped roads. So Tesla is the outlier here. They're the ones who have not kept up with that trend. And NHTSA is now forcing them to take some steps down that road. But as far as I know, all the other manufacturers make sure their equipment only works in places it's been designed to work. And Tesla is the one manufacturer that allows users to to engage it. Uh, There are some limits. It will sometimes say it doesn't want to engage. But there have been so many crashes where Tesla said, well, it shouldn't have been engaged. Uh, And the question is, well, if Tesla knows it shouldn't be engaged, why do they let people turn it on? And you simply don't see that with other manufacturers. I've certainly never heard of it. Mm. And, um, you know, there have been a lot of, I know, uh, criticism about to what degree autopilot has been tested. Um, I guess in a sense, Professor, I mean, much of the testing we've, we've seen has sort of been in the real world. Well, that's another dramatic difference between Tesla and all the other manufacturers. The other manufacturers only release the software for for automating steering when they think it's ready to go, when they think it's safe enough for the general public to use. And Tesla doesn't do that. They they use their retail customers as untrained, unlicensed, uncertified testers to the degree that that special qualifications are needed. But but they're using regular folks as testers. And that's a big problem because if you have software that's defective, and and we should presume it's defective or else they wouldn't be testing it to be done. So if you have software that has limitations or defects and the tester doesn't know what the limitations are and doesn't know what the defects are, you're demanding an awful lot from ordinary folks to counteract potentially very dangerous software. That's not a normal driving skill. So that that's a real concern that we do not see addressed at all by by this recall, making sure drivers are paying attention is really important. But even the most attentive driver who's not qualified and trained as a tester is going to struggle when the car tries to do something really dangerous. Let's take a call from Billy in West Hills, who's a Tesla owner. Billy, thank you very much. Uh, what's your experience with autopilot? So I have a Model X with enhanced autopilot. It's a 2018, so no full self-driving. I have tried to use it on circuit streets before and realized it was pretty wildly dangerous to do so. So I, I tend to keep it to just the, the highways now. Um, but, I mean, it's a great feature. I, I, I would say, you know, to, to your, your guest's comments there, I think there's a little difference with normal manufacturing and the way Tesla does things because they have so much data that they, they can see for quote, what, to what your guest said, you know, using normal people as a tester. I think that's a little misnomer just because of how much Tesla is able to see from the car. But all in all, with this specific idea of limiting it, 
I hope it's limited on surface streets. It's wildly dangerous to use on surface streets. That's been my experience. Billy, thanks for your call. Billy in West Hills. Bill in Palm Springs says, I have a Tesla. I use Autobot all the time. I think it's really helpful, but you certainly have to stay vigilant because other drivers are not always paying attention. Professor Copeman, I wonder if you can comment on that issue because um, the other thing is, you know, how good is Autopilot at detecting unexpected behaviors from drivers in other vehicles? Well, the roads have a lot of um, of misbehavior from uh, all sorts of drivers. Human drivers make mistakes. I've heard lots of stories about uh, Tesla Autopilot and Tesla full drive self-driving also doing crazy weird things and, and seen videos of it. Uh, so so that's the roads. And if you have a, a, car, a car, if you have vehicle automation that behaves in a way that the driver expects and, and understands, then okay, they can supervise it. The real issue with testing is if the car does something unexpected and the driver is not a trained test driver, they're going to have trouble reacting to something. Just what? why in the world would it do that? They're not expecting it. It's going to be a problem. Uh, folks like to say, well, the human drivers are so terrible, so clearly computer would be better, but the data doesn't support that. All the data showing that Tesla Autopilot is safer is actually showing that automatic emergency braking is safer, which most, if not all, of the new cars have. And the Autopilot, if you look at the studies that control for various um, effects, the Autopilot doesn't contribute to safety at all. And one study found it was 11% more dangerous. So Autopilot's not a safety feature. It's a convenience feature. Now, there's a ton of technology on a Tesla that really does help with safety. It's just that Autopilot isn't one of them. We're talking with Professor Philip Kopman of Carnegie Mellon University. He's been working on self-driving car safety for more than 25 years. Also with us, New York Times reporter Jack Ewing, who focuses on electric vehicles. Uh, Jack, I saw that there was a bit of a hit to uh, Tesla's share price with the announcement of this. What, what's expected to be the effect on the company? Well, I think that the, the just to give you a little context, I mean, Tesla... Uh, a year ago, account, uh, accounted for something like 75% of all electric car sales in the United States. That's fallen below 50%. Uh, and if Elon Musk has been making statements uh, in his role as the owner of Twitter that have offended a lot of people, I think. And then when you add in things like this, it all amounts to a hit to, to Tesla's image, to its brand equity, if you will. And uh, so I, you know, I don't think it's it's good for Tesla sales at a time when Tesla sales are are really uh, a little bit in trouble. Thank you so much. That's Jack Ewing, New York Times reporter. Our thanks to Professor Philip Kopman for joining us as well. It's Air Talk on LA is eighty nine point three. Coming up, we'll talk about two Los Angeles County landfills that are dealing with chemical reactions causing problems. One, they're smoldering in the landfill itself because of a chemical reaction. In the other, with the heavy rains of the last rainy season, that water intrusion has caused the growth of bacteria and putrid odors which have affected the communities nearby. We'll talk about what sort of remediation, if any, is contemplated when we come back in just one minute on AirTalk. Talk. 
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at Theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Two Los Angeles County landfills are dealing with chemical reactions that have created problems. One of them, the Chiquita Canyon landfill in Castaic, where there is smoldering under the surface. The other is the Sunshine Canyon landfill in Silmar, where heavy rain intrusion has caused bacterial growth with putrid odors which have emanated from it. Writing about both of these is Los Angeles Times air quality reporter Tony Briscoe. Tony, thank you for being with us and, and talking about the piece you've written in the Times. Thank you for having me, Larry. Let's start first with Chiquita Canyon, which is in Castaic. What seems to be going on beneath the surface of the dump? Sure. Um, so tons of garbage is burning due to this rare chemical reaction uh, that's causing and producing a lot of heat. Uh, regulators are still looking into what's particularly causing it. Uh, but the leading theory right now is that uh, an intrusion of oxygen sped up decomposition and produced a lot of heat. Uh, oxygen is also the precursor to any type of ignition. Uh, and uh, right now, um, you know, just tons of garbage uh, is believed to be smoldering at temperatures above 200 degrees. Uh, this has intensified and expanded over the past several months and is now believed to be uh, affecting a 30-acre area of the landfill. Uh, this is pretty deep inside. It's about 200 to 300 feet deep. Um, it's caused uh, a lot of gas pressure to build up within the landfill, and that's also caused contaminated water, uh, contaminated water to uh, kind of upwell to the surface. Uh, but, you know, residents nearby are complaining of burning garbage odors, uh, like burning chemical smells, and it's really caused a lot of um, literally uh, headaches for residents, headaches, stomach aches, uh, you know, and uh, trouble uh, breathing. Tony, how does uh, enough oxygen get to that level of depth to be able to mm -hmm. feed smoldering, or I don't know if you technically call this a fire or not, but this sure. heat reaction that's taking place? Yeah, and, th and that's another interesting thing is that, you know, according to the state's own metrics, this does appear to be um, an underground landfill fire. Um, it's not anything that, you know, L.A. County has seen in its history. Um, but um, I don't think that um, regulators or the landfill is really willing to concede that at this point. Uh, certainly, we've seen these um, increased temperatures, and uh, that's believed to be caused by, um, I believe, the um, oxygen or the, the gas pumping system. So 
landfills really try and control a lot of their odors through a system of uh, pipes that go deep into the dump and they collect all of these really you know, toxic and odorous uh, gases from deep down inside from years of compacting trash. Um, and when you over pump, you can actually introduce oxygen, which speeds up decomposition oh. um, and produces a lot of heat. Um, and so that's kind of the leading theory at this point as to uh, what might have caused um, this incident to start. Um, they observed uh, this landfill, a lot of uh, elevated uh, oxygen levels prior to this incident starting within a lot of their gas collection wells. We're talking with Los Angeles Times air quality reporter Tony Briscoe, his recent piece looking at two Los Angeles County landfills where chemical reactions have created problems. We're beginning with the Castaic located Chiquita Canyon uh, uh, landfill, which uh, has uh, smoldering under the surface. With us also is Terrence Mann, the head of enforcement for the South Coast Air Quality Management District. Uh, please share with us, uh, Terrence, what what role the state and and uh, a regional agency like AQMD plays in overseeing emissions from landfills. Good morning, Larry. Thank you for having me. South Coast AQMD is, is the local air quality regulator for the region. And so uh, our role in these landfills and similar facilities is uh, we permit equipment and we um, have rules that govern operations um, that ultimately deal with the emissions that come from landfills. So we permit, for example, flares uh, on the facilities, and there are also permits for leachate collection systems, landfill co uh, gas collection systems, and similar things. Odors under state law are also considered emissions, air quality emissions. And so our agency responds to complaints from members of the public, and there have been many of them for both of these landfills, uh, and we take enforcement action uh, based on whether it's the permits or these odors for public nuisance. And and has um, have the operators of Chiquita Canyon been cited for the the burning underground? Uh, well, there are, there are two different processes here. So there's the burning underground, that process that's happening subsurface. Um, our agency doesn't have that kind of expertise. We're focused on what's coming. What's coming of out? Okay. And so the the local enforcement agency, uh, which is it is L.A. County, um, working in conjunction with Cal Recycle, they've taken enforcement action based on what's happening underground. Our agency has taken enforcement action. We've issued notices of violation to Chiquita Canyon Landfill based on public nuisance. So focusing on how the local community members <clears throat> are being impacted. And I would note we've actually issued a lot of no notices of violation, over 100 just this year to the landfill. We've not heard back from the operators of Chiquita Canyon Landfill about their remediation efforts there. Uh, Cal Recycle, the state agency that was just mentioned by Terrence Mann, uh, released a statement. Cal Recycle takes the health and safety of Californians seriously, is committed to supporting local agencies that have direct authority over their local solid waste facilities. Cal Recycle's role is to provide technical guidance and ongoing support for the solid waste local enforcement agencies 
agencies and other agencies that regulate these facilities, including the L.A. Regional Water Quality Control Board and the South Coast AQMD. Terrence Mann is head of enforcement at the AQMD and, and joining us. Tony Briscoe of the L.A. Times, were you able to get uh, any sort of response from the operators of Chiquita Canyon as to what they're attempting to do? Yes. Um, so it seems like there's a, kind of a flurry of activity um, that's been going on over the past several months. Um, namely, they're trying to remove uh, a lot of the liquids and gases that are believed to be fueling these odors and emissions uh, and contributing to this heat. Um, you know, what's more, uh, this high heat has really melted uh, some of the plastic components, um, you know, of their pollution control system. So they've needed to replace those with um, steel pipes. Uh, that can withstand uh, these kind of scorching temperatures. Um, as Terrence mentioned, uh, they're installing flares to kind of burn off some of these more problematic uh, uh, gases and emissions. Uh, but the county is still calling for more action, including uh, calling on the landfill operator to add more soil to make sure that uh, gases aren't seeping out into unwanted areas. Um, and ultimately, just given that this situation uh, you know, is continuing to expand, uh, you know, they might have to ultimately, according to state reports, uh, dig a trench around it, a deep trench to stop it from expanding to other areas of the dump. Tony, uh, what sort of recourse do nearby residents have? Uh, I mean, can, can they file civil suits against the operator of Chiquita Canyon, or are there any sorts of, of compensation they can get from any sort of uh, mitigation on their property to help protect them from the odors? Sure. Uh, from what, uh, from my understanding, there is a, a civil suit ongoing right now with uh, about 150 uh, nearby residents who've complained uh, about a number of uh, just, uh, you know, health concerns, uh, you know, quality of life concerns, um, because this is, you know, this issue has persisted for months. Um, and really, when you're talking about complaints, this has been very abnormal. It's 75 uh, times the number of complaints that they saw in the previous year, thousands. Uh, so uh, they, uh, a number of residents have filed a civil suit uh, seeking um, recourse in, a, in an attempt really to um, close this landfill, which has been expanded and um, has a permit uh, to continue disposing waste uh, throughout uh, the next uh, decade, uh, at least. Um, uh, but there uh, are also uh, county uh, officials, uh, Supervisor Catherine Barger, who has tried to help residents um, with their utility bills because a lot of residents are, you know, constantly running their air conditioning systems or air purifiers. Uh, many I, I've spoken with have bought air purifiers to try and alleviate these odors. Um, and that's quite expensive. Um, so uh, the county is offering uh, for hundreds of households nearby to um, uh, defray those costs from higher electric bills as they uh, run these uh, air filtration uh, systems. Is anybody, Tony, offering a, a timeline when the residents are likely to get relief? Well, uh, this could um, persist for several more months. We really don't know how long this could go. Um, uh, we're really looking forward to, um, you know, an updated timeline and hoping that this uh, will abate, that these efforts will, um, 
Or that uh, they work, yeah. Yeah, that they, that they work, uh, but we have not heard yet whether or not this just, uh, this kind of chemical reaction has been able to be uh, abated in the way that uh, the landfill operators want so far. We'll talk about the other landfill momentarily. That's Tony Briscoe, who's the air quality reporter for the L.A. Times, who's written about these two um, North L.A. County landfills, also with his Terrence Mann, head of enforcement for the South Coast Air Quality Management District. But I do have an update on traffic I need to share. A couple dozen protesters are on the southbound Harbor Freeway near the Hollywood Freeway. That's the 110 near the 101 in downtown Los Angeles. The protesters have lined up across the freeway. California Highway Patrol officers are on the scene, but they have not arrested any of the protesters at least as the latest reports that we have. But all traffic on the 110 Harbor Freeway has been stopped as a result of the couple dozen protesters. Uh, They're protesting uh, the Israel-Hamas war and uh, are on the freeway. So uh, as we have any other details or, or that the protest is no longer going on and traffic is resumed, we'll bring that to you just as soon as we have it. Now, Tony, the other landfill is Sunshine Canyon in Silmar. Here, you write that it's heavy rains that have caused the problem underground. Share with us what the water intrusion has caused there. Sure. Uh, This has really been an unprecedented amount of rainfall uh, for Sunshine Canyon. Uh, They received 55 inches of, uh, you know, during the last wet season of rainfall. Uh, which is more than three times the amount that the site typically gets. Uh, And then adding on top of that, uh, we had Tropical Storm Hillary move through the area, and that added eight uh, more inches uh, this August uh, over the course of 24 hours. Um, So this water has really filtered deep inside the dome, uh, encouraging bacteria growth, uh, and this bacteria and decomposition um, has produced uh, these putrid gases and, and toxic gases. Uh, So residents there have complained uh, of these sour garbage odors, um, and that's specifically been an issue for a local elementary school, Van Gogh Elementary, uh, where parents have told me they've, you know, uh, tried to limit time outdoors during at least one incident. Um, They've uh, canceled uh, recess, um, and they've uh, tried to, in certain instances, uh, in the mornings when trash odors are uh, sometimes at their worst, uh, prevent kids from lining up out, uh, outside. They'll bring mm. them in uh, much sooner than they would. Uh, but yeah, it's also been uh, a, a huge nuisance that has persisted for months there as well. And and I'm aware of odor problems with landfills like this, particularly during heat waves where maybe they haven't uh, buried uh, the trash that's coming in quickly enough. And so the decomposition, um, you, you know, uh, starts while while it's still exposed to the air and, and that can bother nearby residents. This is the first time I recall where it's been water intrusion that has caused the bacteria to form underground. And But I was wondering, in your reporting, Tony, it, is, is this something that has happened in rainy years elsewhere? Or is this the, the first that um, we're aware of this phenomenon? No, th- this is a much more common, uh, you know, issue. Uh, but certainly uh, for, you know, a landfill in Southern California where we don't uh, receive this tremendous amount of, of, of rainfall, um, uh, it's, it's been abnormal. And uh, once again, th- this landfill, 
um, received uh, twice as many complaints as in previous years. And uh, the issues, even though, you know, uh, for a tropical storm uh, Hillary moved through in August, uh, folks are still complaining months later about mm. these issues because it's really seeded a long-term, uh, you know, uh, kind of issue there with, uh, you know, fueling this decomposition deep inside uh, the dump. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, um, the, the landfill operators there are really trying to get their um, gas collection system uh, to process all of the gases that are um, emerging uh, from this wet trash. And certainly during Tropical Storm uh, Hillary, there were 100 uh, plus degree days uh, that really sped up decomposition before this trash was even able to reach the dump as well. All right. Uh, we have a statement from Republic Services, which operates the Sunshine Canyon landfill in Silmar. It reads, we're committed to operating responsibly and with care for the environment as we manage the community's waste disposal needs. We take aggressive steps every day to mitigate off-site odors at Sunshine Canyon landfill. Our current challenges are due to extreme weather and distinct from the issues at Chiquita Canyon. I think we've made that clear in our coverage in this segment. The unprecedented summer rainfall from Hurricane Hillary and seasonal high winds, for example, have impacted our odor mitigation. We're diligently adapting our processes to accommodate any rapidly changing weather patterns. We understand the community's concerns. We're always working to improve and adapt to the environmental challenges we face. We've been working closely with city, county, and air district officials and have already implemented several procedures to help further mitigate the potential for all off-site odors. That from Republic Services, operator of Sunshine Canyon Landfill. And uh, let me just close this off by bringing uh, back into the conversation from the South Coast Air Quality Management District Head of Enforcement, Terrence Mann. Uh, Terrence, what has been uh, the, the cooperation level from Republic? We've actually worked very closely uh, with Republic this year to address uh, the issues caused by the, this unprecedented level of, of rainfall. Uh, early in the year, so January, February, March, uh, we were receiving 100 or 200 complaints a month, which is a big number uh, in, in the regulatory world. Um, working with the landfill, they agreed to make a number of, uh, of changes uh, to implement mitigation measures, you know, uh, moving soil, dealing with erosion, that kind of thing, but also drilling new wells to try to try to get their landfill gas collection system back online and also dewatering the existing ones. As a result of that, that plus favorable weather conditions, the number of complaints dropped to 20 or 30 for multiple months. So we're talking less than one a day, uh, a couple of those months. And so things appear to have improved. The increased rainfall in subsequent months, you know, culminating in Tropical Storm Hillary on August 20th, uh, you know, wiped away a lot of those gains. And it was really unfortunate. We really feel for the members of the community impacted. But again, we were looking at over 200, 250 complaints each month, and especially at the schools as community members were being impacted. Right. One thing I will note, if I could just add yeah, one more briefly, point, yeah. just, just within the last week, Republic has developed a new plan um, where they are looking to actually delay the start time 
of it's called tipping where they actually unload those tractor trailers and it's it's pretty it's a it's very challenging operationally but they're taking steps to try to actually delay the entire operation for a couple hours in the morning to give some relief uh, to the schools and members of the community very good terrence man of the south coast air quality management district tony briscoe air quality reporter for the la times talking about these two la county landfills and the environmental problems that have been created coming up we'll talk about an exhibition at the art center college of design looking at invented languages you're probably familiar with klingon and elvish and the like But what about taking artists and having them create their own written language? What sorts of symbols would they use that they think would better communicate than the letter system we use now? We'll find out when we come back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. A new exhibit at the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena highlights the importance of writing uh, systems made up of symbols and rules and the process that goes into creating them. The exhibit's titled Quasi Experimental Writing Systems, and it doesn't showcase languages we already know. Instead, its curators have selected artists from a host of disciplines who were in various stages of inventing their own writing scripts, drawing on inspiration from the natural world, from mythology, and from science fiction. You're probably familiar in uh, filmed entertainment, the kinds of languages that we see, like Elvish and Klingon and so many others. But joining us to talk about how artists are taking this on is Lavinia Lascaris, who is graphic designer and curator of the exhibit on display at the HMCT Gallery at Art Center College of Design. Lavinia, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So where'd the idea for this exhibition come from? Um, So I'm a graphic designer by trade, and inherent in that practice is working with letter forms. Um, I work at the Hoffmitz-Milken Center for Typography, which is an educational institution, a department at Art Center College of Design, um, funded by the Lowell Milken Family Foundation, which is focused on the learning, discussion, and exchange of ideas and skills related to typography. Um, And I think that working with typography requires an inherent passion for how language operates, as it's con- it constantly studies and iterates the relationship between how language sounds and how it looks. Um, 
I'm fascinated by language. I think it's one of the one of humanity's greatest inventions. Yeah. And I'm always researching and reading about interesting linguistic phenomena and studying the sociological connections between typography and languages. And uh, so going back to your yeah, question. Yeah, right, right. And, and, and so this is something that's always interested you. How did you identify the artists to contribute to this? Um, we did a call for proposals uh, early this summer, this past summer, uh, announcing the theme of the exhibition and uh, invited artists, typographers, and designers to submit work, um, either existing work that they had that related to the theme or new work that the exhibition inspired them to do. So give some examples of some of the things we see in the exhibit and how these artists uh, came up with the characters that they used to depict this written language. Um, one, of, one of the projects um, is, is a... Uh, a typeface, um, it's, it's a font, like a, a font, a font file that was created by tracing the teeth marks of, um, uh, of a beaver on a piece of wood, on a log that was found in Pennsylvania. Um, and so they, they traced those marks and implemented them into font software and output a font um, that was the result of those tracings. So that's one example. And is this something that they're conceiving could actually be built into a, a language, or is it just is it just sort of a piece of you know something that they believe the imagery communicates something to the viewer? Well, th the purpose of each project is different. Um, I think a lot of projects are some are functional and they are meant to be used in the way that we know how to use written language. Um, others are purely speculative and they're uh, more uh, looking to experiment with um, different forms and with a different approach to languages and scripts. Some of them, you know, looking at the images here, look like I would have thought they actually were a language. You know, yeah. There's enough in common with historic um, written languages that they, oh, this is just a language I don't know. Others look nothing like any sort of written language mm -hmm. you've ever seen before, the stroke marks or, or things like that, which is interesting because you gave them total latitude in how they did this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also joining us to to talk about uh, invented languages is professor, uh, professional language creator and author of the book, The Art of Language Invention, David Peterson. He created Dothraki, which is the Game of Thrones language. He also most recently worked on language creation for House of the Dragon, Dune 1 and 2, Halo and Elemental. David Peterson, good to have you with us today on Air Talk. Yeah, good to have, uh, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, when when you are are contracted to create a language for some piece of entertainment, for a game, or or for a film, or something like that, what are some of the things that you're thinking about that need to be included in the invented language? Well, any invented language is simply a method for transcribing thought, transcribing meaning. Uh, and so, of course, there's going to have to be some systematic way to associate uh, meaning and grammar to whatever form is being used, whether that's a spoken form, you know, for oral languages, which are the most common, uh, whether it's a sign language, which I've done for things like uh, Dune or, 
occasionally uh, a purely visual language. I've never done that for um, for a television show or film, but I've uh, certainly created my own visual language, at least one of them back in 2003. Um, and then, of course, sometimes there's combinations of the two. Like in, in Dune, I created two different sign languages, a spoken language uh, and a writing system uh, for for the spoken language, for the Fremen language. Is this something you got into, you started experimenting with as a kid? Uh, well, not exactly. Uh, or at least I don't think I was a kid. I was, uh, I was a sophomore in college at UC Berkeley, uh, where I came up with the idea. I'd been studying many, many languages, uh, but I came up with the idea of creating my own language rather than for, inter instead of being for international communication, like Esperanto, uh, just for fun. Uh, and so basically that was 2000. And right then uh, in my notebook, in my linguistics class, I started creating my first language and my first writing system. And how how much does it have to be connected to a language that is well known, sort of the principles of that, that language? And how, or how much can it be just um, not sound like anything you would have ever heard before as a form of communication? Uh, it can sound uh, just like a, a natural language or a pre-existing language, or it can sound nothing like it whatsoever. Uh, and it really depends. It depends on the creator. It depends on the project. depends on what they want to do with it. Uh, in general, like nowadays when I'm uh, creating languages uh, with my wife, Jessie, for uh, film and television, uh, in general, we were trying to create something unique, uh, unless it's specifically required based on the... Uh, you know, the dictates of the project, for example, I created a futuristic version of English for the hundred on the CW. And so in that case, it was actually derived from the English language. But for other projects, like for Elemental, uh, that was completely unique, uh, very different and honestly didn't sound like anything I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> How do you come up with it? I'm sure people are interested in, in I mean, obviously, there's a tremendous amount of creativity. But how do you get how do you get your brain to that place to develop this? Oh, it, it can be a variety of inspirations. Actually, Elemental is a good example. Uh, part of the inspiration for uh, the sound system of Elemental was, well, first, we wanted it to sound like fire beans because this was, was created mm -hmm. for the fire people of Elemental. But also, um, they shared with us initial sketches of all of, of the animation. And um, the fire beans didn't have noses. And so based on that, we didn't include any nasal sounds like N or M in the language. Uh, it turned out in a later revision, they gave the fire people noses. And so it was like, oh, well, uh, <laughs> but that was that was one inspiration for that. And then for the writing system itself, it was based on uh, flames coming out of a brazier. And so the the brazier is kind of the separator between the consonant and the vowel. The, the flame is the vowel itself, uh, or flame for the vowel, and then smoke for um, a kind of uh, fricative that serves. So instead of, you could have, you know, ah, uh, or you could have, and then the would be smoke. That's just an F. And then below that is kind of the fuel, and that's the consonant, and that gives us the shape of each syllable in the writing system. We're talking with professional language creator and author of The Art of Language Invention. He created Dothraki for Game of Thrones, most recently worked on Elemental, the Disney Pixar film he was just talking about, also House of the Dragon, Dune 1 and 2, and Halo. Uh, and there are a number of different college courses at this point on Invention 
invented language, and David, in fact, taught one up at UC Berkeley. <laughs> so we'll continue with him and also talk with Lavinia Lascaris, who is graphic designer and curator of the exhibit at the Art Center College of Design titled Quasi-Experimental Writing Systems in which artists come up with their own written language examples. They're on exhibit now at Art Center. We'll be back in just one minute on Air Talk. Just a reminder, in case you just joined us, the 110 freeway is still closed uh, on the southbound side of the freeway because of a protest that's taking place. CHP saying it appears that drivers got out of their cars and then went across the freeway and blocked the flow of traffic. That's on the 110 near the 101 in downtown Los Angeles. We'll keep you updated. As soon as the freeway reopens, we will let you know. We're talking about invented languages. Joining us is Lavinia Lascaris, who is graphic designer and curator of the exhibit Quasi-Experimental Writing Systems on display at the HMCT Gallery at Art Center College of Design. I assume that's at the larger location just down the street from our studios. Is that right? Not at the historic up in the hillside location. Right. Uh, Lavinia... um, you uh, mentioned that there uh, is an artist who actually uses Dune and the language there as a point of departure. Share with us what that work looks like, please. Uh, yeah, she created what um, she calls a sand plate uh, that has an inscription uh, inspired by the language of the Fremen from, from Dune. And um, she researched uh, Frank Herbert, who wrote the novel, and uh, found that uh, he was uh, very inspired by Arabic uh, when he was creating um, that world. And so uh, she created an inscription to um, about the prophecy of the giver of water that mirrors uh, the Kufic Arabic script. All right, very good. Uh, some of some of these, um, you know, I, I don't know about them as depictions of written language, but are just absolutely they're beautiful. The, the they images are. are really, really beautiful. I'm looking at, um, is it Sina Fakur? Is, is that who I'm, uh, am I pronouncing the name correctly? Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, reviving the world's first phonetic writing system, linear Elamite. Uh, and, I mean, it's just fascinating. Some of these, they are just beautiful images. They are, yeah. Uh, and and again, the range of them is is uh, so so fascinating. So, uh, is it open uh, daily for people to come walk through the exhibition and to see it? Yes, it's open daily till 10 p.m. and uh, it's open until mid-April. And the contributors, do they have some connection to Art Center, like alums or current students or fellows or what? There are some that are. Um, either a faculty or staff at um, Art Center, but most are international artists um, who don't have any affiliation with uh, HMCT or with Art Center. David Peterson, professional language creator, given that so many schools are now teaching this, I mean, are there, are there actually jobs um, or, or are, are there, you know, yourself and just a handful of people who've got all the jobs sewn up in this? There aren't a ton of jobs, uh, and I don't think there ever will be uh, a huge amount of jobs, because essentially um, 
especially if you're talking about television and film, it is generally restricted to uh, fantasy and science fiction uh, films or, or television shows, which, of course, themselves are just a small percentage of the total. So, for example, you don't there isn't a really big call for language creators for all the Hallmark movies that are being filmed every year. Uh, if there were, believe me, we would, we would all be very, very Boom wealthy. Industry. Um, and so like, it's just, uh, it's always going to be a fraction uh, and it's even going to be a fraction of those because not every fantasy or science fiction uh, project has a created language or a created writing system. They could, but they don't. Um, and so it's, you're basically talking about a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. And yes, those jobs are intensely, uh, competitive. Uh, so it's possible to make money, but it's very, very difficult. David, we're almost out of time. Real quickly, we have a listener, Peter, who wants to know, who owns the intellectual property? So when you create a language, who owns that that long language? Uh, the uh, So any actual physical artifact I create, so for example, like a, you know, a, a, a PDF of a dictionary or a font file, those things would be owned by the studio. But of course, a language and a writing system are nothing more than ideas, and nobody can own those. All right. David Peterson, thank you very much for being with us. And Lavinia Lascaras, thank you for being with us as well, talking about the Art Center exhibition. Thank we you. just got word CHP has declared an unlawful protest on the 110 freeway and has warned protesters they'll be arrested if they don't disperse. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino adventures of a German-Jewish boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us wherever you are in Southern California or listening on the LAist app. I'll learn how to pronounce it, the LAist app, wherever you are across the country or around the world. We just have an update on the closure of the 110 freeway near the 101 in downtown Los Angeles. The California Highway Patrol has begun arresting protesters. Uh, they're using zip ties to restrain them and leading them away from the protest line, in case you just joined us. Um, what CHP said is it appeared that uh, protesters had driven to that location in downtown and gotten out of their cars and then uh, lined up across the freeway, two or three dozen of them, to block traffic. So that's what led to traffic being blocked in the area, and um, CHP's obviously trying to get the freeway open again. We'll keep you updated on what's happening. These are protesters protesting the war in Gaza. We turn our attention right now to uh, the European Union 
union's legislation on artificial intelligence. The deal was made last Friday, and you know, as we saw with privacy rules that were enacted by the EU, that definitely had an effect on uh, the privacy practices of, of a number of different uh, companies here in the United States. Is, uh, is this limit on artificial intelligence similarly going to have an effect here? That's what we hope to get at. Joining us is Javier Espinoza, who's EU correspondent for the Financial Times. He's based in Brussels. Javier, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Larry. Greetings from um, very dark and wet uh, Brussels. I shouldn't tell you then it's about 70 degrees and sunny here. I, I, don't, I shouldn't rub that in. But uh, uh, what do we know about this agreement? Do we have any details in, in uh, how this is going to be implemented? Yeah, I think the first thing to realize or just understand is that the EU is the first continent to actually have rules on artificial intelligence. No other block uh, or country in the world has tried to do this. Essentially, the, 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 the ethos or the spirit of this new legislation is to make sure that AI doesn't get out of hand. So for instance, um, the rules prevent the use of this technology for social scoring, meaning, you know, a bit of a black mirror, if you know the series where, you know, you can sort of rate someone based on their online activities. There's always the need to have a, a, a human making decisions. So it's a, the, 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 the essence of the regulation is that it's human-centric. And that's one side of the law. And then the second part of it is that the EU is acutely aware that there's a second revolution happening and they want to make sure that that set thresholds so that they can uh, uh, regulate and make sure that everything is safe when it comes again, uh, no surprise here, American companies taking the lead on AI, meaning Microsoft and Google so far. And we should mention this isn't about regulating the underlying technology. My understanding of this is it's about regulating the application of AI. Is, is that correct? It is regulating the application of AI, and that has led to a big fight here because some people believe that that shouldn't be the case, that it should be all about the principles and assessing the risks. But um, the members of parliament, so one of the key stakeholders in dealing with the rules here, they want to actually, and they have proposed, to regulate foundational models. But countries, mainly France, where we have a startup called Mistral, which is trying to be a, com a real competitor for against ChatGPT and Google's Bard. They are concerned that the technology applications, they should not uh, be regulated. So even the French president came out yesterday on the record saying that he's concerned that the EU is very good at creating laws and exporting them elsewhere, but not really good at allowing innovation. We're talking with Financial Times uh, EU correspondent Javier Espinoza, joining us on AirTalk, also with us from the University of Washington, Professor of Law and Information Scientist Ryan Kahlo. Professor Kahlo, it's good to have you with us again. 
share with us the challenge just generally in regulating the application of AI. How tough is it to do that? Yeah, it's a non-trivial challenge. I mean, artificial intelligence is not a thing like a radio or a train. Um, it's best understood as a set of techniques that are aimed at approximating some aspect of human or animal cognition. Um, so you can't really regulate the underlying technology as such. Rather, you have to um, regulate the applications. And I think in doing that, some of the challenges include line drawing. Um, so if you're saying that uh, it's too risky to allow artificial intelligence to um, you know, manipulate uh, the vulnerable, uh, where do you draw that line? Uh, another big issue is uh, enforcement. So you can have a free ranging uh, set of obligations, but how do you get at the many, many different applications out there? So yeah, there are some real challenges ahead of the EU, even as they make this historic um, uh, rule. Here in the United States, we, we don't tend to be aggressive in in coming up with regulations like this, but I mentioned at the top the the European uh, privacy restrictions, um, which you know led here in the United States to have websites where you have to to click through what your cookie options are before you're able to use the site. Um, I assume that really came from the EU's regulation. Is is that accurate? I think that's correct. I mean, um, nobody who's a multinational company can afford uh, not to um, have services and consumers in, in Europe. And so when the EU passes a comprehensive privacy law like GDPR, um, it's, it's cheaper and, and more effective uh, for these companies to just simply make one system that complies with the highest denominator. And we call that sometimes in privacy, the Brussels effect. Uh, and we also have a version of that in the United States, um, kind of the Sacramento effect where you can't ignore California either. And so if California passes technology related laws, everybody complies. Um, so I, I expect to see a similar dynamic play out with, uh, with the AI Act. What's the potential in it having a chilling effect like the French president is concerned about? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think that in the United States, uh, not only would we be concerned about the impact on innovation, but some of the um, uh, contemplated regulations would also rub up against free speech and the First Amendment, um, such as the limitations on deep fakes. So I think, I think we'd have to be careful in the United States how to implement this. Um, I will say about Europe, each member state is free to implement and enforce the act. Um, it has some independence and authority to do that. So if France is concerned that uh, the, the um, AI Act is too um, onerous or, or threatens innovation, uh, it does have some, uh, I, my understanding is it does have some ability to be selective about um, how it implements the act and where it enforces it. Um, maybe we'll see that in the United States as well. We have an executive order that was recently uh, issued by President Biden on artificial intelligence. What's in that? Well, that's really an interesting thing. So I think it's important to remember that the president doesn't have any rulemaking power. Uh, the only power the president has is but what's been committed to him by the Constitution 
or by an act of Congress. So most of the um, executive order, uh, all hundred and some odd pages of it, are really directed at federal agencies over which the executive has control. So what we should expect is different behavior from our federal agencies um, in terms of what they buy, who they hire, what their priorities are. But there's very little in the act, uh, sorry, very, very little in the order uh, that would actually regulate artificial intelligence. There is a reference to the Defense Production Act, which says that if somebody makes an AI that's an uh, actual threat to national security or, or uh, implicates uh, national defense, then there could be some extra requirements. But you know, so far, uh, nobody thinks any AI like that exists or will soon. Well, and and wouldn't the federal government have that sort of latitude if it was a national security risk, even without the president's executive order? Well, yes. I mean, so because Congress has committed certain authorities to the government, um, to the executive, the president can step in, um, like, you know, with World War II and steel production. Um, That's a power that's been pre-committed, but uh, there would have to be... um, a, a good faith assertion that there was a real risk to national defense, national security. Um, again, I don't think anybody in the Biden administration has come forward and pointed to a particular technology that either exists or is envisioned that would reach that threshold. So most of the executive order really is instructions to federal agencies um, and not rules that would govern AI. We're talking with University of Washington Professor of Law and Information Science, Ryan Kahlo, joining us on AirTalk. Also with us from the Financial Times EU correspondent, Javier Espinoza. Uh, Javier, uh, who are going to be the decision makers on these applications of of AI? Who, Who is the European Union going to be looking to to be the gatekeepers? So, like they did more recently with other pieces of legislation like the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, the EU has the American companies uh, in in mind when they draft uh, this legislation. So, on the face of it, even if they don't say it explicitly, the officials and and the senior uh, EU uh, people that I talk to here tell me that linked to the French president's concern is that they are trying to set thresholds that will actually capture uh, chat GPT and and BARD. And in the end, they have or reserve the possibility, they have the power to increase the thresholds. So as European startups continue to grow, they will eventually also lift the threshold so that their own that Europe's own AI answers to the American uh, companies that so far have the advantage, have the possibility to grow. It is very interesting to me to see that even now we have a French equivalent, whereas when, uh, you know, Google and uh, Facebook and all the companies that we're used to started coming up, they didn't really have a major challenger. So. It's uh, very exciting to see who is going to be the winner on the AI race. Javier, thank you for being with us. I know you need to run and really appreciate you taking time and joining us from Brussels. Thanks so much. Thank you and uh, enjoy the sunshine. All right, we will and hope your weather turns for the better soon. That's Javier Espinoza, 
Ryan Kahlo, professor at the University of Washington, joins us. Professor, uh, who should be the people that actually make the determinations about specific applications of AI as to whether they pose a public harm? Should these be uh, digital ethicists? Uh, should they be people with particular tech expertise? Who, who do you see as the, ga as the logical gatekeepers? Well, I think in a democratic society, it has to be uh, lawmakers at the federal and state level. And I think that our obligation or what would be wise is to make sure that they have the technical unbiased um, uh, uh, advice that they need to make wise decisions. And so, you know, I, I've um, long advocated for resuscitating something called the Office of Technology Assessment, which starting in the 70s, uh, advised Congress on technology. Um, it was an interdisciplinary, technology-heavy body that helped Congress understand what was going on and make good decisions. Um, and it was defunded, unfortunately, in the 90s during the so-called Gingrich Revolution. But I think it's time to bring it back. But ultimately, it's our elected officials, uh, and in some cases, of course, judges, uh, who need to be making these calls. Thank you so much, Professor, for joining us again. Good to talk with you. Great to talk to you as always, Larry. Talk to you soon. Thank you. University of Washington Professor of Law and Information Science Ryan Kahlo with us on Air Talk as we discuss the European Union's announcement Friday. They've created the world's first comprehensive artificial intelligence rules. Coming up on Air Talk, a new study published in Nature, which looks at the best ways that parents can help develop language in their children. We'll hear the advice from that study and what the littlest of brains are able to take in when we come back in one minute. The House is pushing toward a vote to formally authorize the impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. You'll hear more about that on NPR's Here and Now, coming up on LAS 89.3 in just about uh, oh, 18 minutes or so. Also, I uh, want to mention on Here and Now, they're going to be talking about uh, the a statement that was released yesterday from COP28, the climate conference, about fossil fuel emissions and the use of fossil fuel and, and curtailing it. That's coming up on Here and Now in just a few minutes. But right now we turn our attention to a recently published study in the journal Nature that looked at infants and ways to help grow their language comprehension. With us is co-author of the study and assistant professor of computer science at the Trinity College of Dublin, Giovanni Di Liberto. Professor, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Larry. It's great to be here. Uh, so first of all, before we get into the specific results, what did this study indicate about the way in which the developing brain is is able to take in language. What do we know about the 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 brains of babies about what they're able to comprehend? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, we know from large amount of literature that uh, up to about six months of age, 
the brain, if we have a brain of a child from one country or another country with different languages, they, all of these babies, they'll be sensitive to any language equally, but then the brain gets specialized in the native language. And we just don't know how that happens, right? Uh, but by nine months, 10 months of age, the a baby that is an Italian baby will be specialized in Italian sounds and will be less good in distinguishing uh, sounds in English or in, in Mandarin or other languages. And so in this study, we could uh, tap on exactly on that mechanism of which sound the baby is sensitive to at different moments of life in the first year of life. And so we could see that at uh, um, four months of age, there was no special sensitivity, while from seven months of age and also at 11 uh, months of age, there was this special sensitivity to that particular uh, native language. I wonder, too, about differences within languages. So Italian, for example, or Spanish, the so-called Romance languages, term we use here, um, there, there's almost a natural musicality and, and the way the emphasis is on those languages versus some that are, are much flatter, that don't have the degree of emphasis on particular syllables. Does that make it easier for the baby to comprehend a language that's a bit more musical, so to speak, than one that isn't? That's a good point. I don't know, honestly, if one language is easier than the other in that sense. Um, also because the, the, the brain of the baby is just so amazing at learning. So I don't know if there is any study that shows that one language is easier than the other, honestly. Um, but it, it would make sense that, uh, you know, what is more uh, rhythmic rather than musical, what is more uh, yeah. regular and rhythmic is just easier to, to track. Yes, I would. I would think so. So the finding of this study, what does it say about singing to a baby or using sort of sing songy verbal rhythms such as you'd find in nursery rhymes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. Uh, there are there are two angles. One is uh, the methodological angle, and the other is theoretical. So, methodological is that we we used nursery rhymes to track the this linguistic learning, the, the development in the first year of life. So, one is purely methodological, and it's exciting because um, it just uh, allows us to to get these metrics that are so rich and sensitive compared to previous studies. Previous studies were focusing on you know, an entire study would have been on two syllables, just ba versus ga versus da, maybe three syllables. While in this, with these measurements we do, we can track all of these, this richness of language, all of different combinations. But about more specifically your question about rhythms, uh, it's um, it's very interesting. Um, the theory that the senior author of the study, um, Professor Gushwami, has is all about the rhythms and the uh, rhythms of the brain. So there is a whole part of neuroscience that studies the rhythms of the brain. And what uh, um, we, could, we found, not just with this study, but with a combination of studies in this project that is called Baby Rhythm, uh, we could find that uh, nursery rhymes and, and parents, they naturally tune to the rhythms of the brain of the baby. So we nursery rhymes are, are designed, naturally designed, to be optimal for language learning. That's the, that's the idea. And and when do we think that the baby develops the the ability to 
comprehend more meaning, that it goes beyond the rhythm to the actual phonetic sound that's being made? Yeah, so the phonetic um, linguistic content uh, would emerge around seven months of age, according to this study that we published. Um, or if you want, we had only three moments of time that we recorded, four, seven, and 11. And we could track this at seven, uh, but not at four. So it's somewhere in between, in between, let's say, uh, five, six, seven months. Um, and that is for the um, perception of phonemes, so this linguistic unit, um, that is embedded in real ecologically valid um, stimuli. So we are talking about nursery rhymes. Uh, and so this is what uh, babies do in their, in their real life. We're talking with researcher Giovanni Di Liberto, who co-author of the study just published in the journal Nature and is assistant professor of computer science at the Trinity College of Dublin. Also with us from here in Southern California, UC Irvine, associate professor of psychological science, Angela Lukowski. Professor Lukowski, good to have you with us. Thank you, Larry. So nice to be here today. What are your thoughts about the findings here? I think the study that Giovanni and his colleagues published is really interesting. Uh, the findings are particularly noteworthy given the reliance on natural streams of speech, so the use of nursery rhymes as stimuli in the study, and as a result of the longitudinal nature of the study as well. Um, a lot of previous work focused on language has done this kind of work cross-sectionally, so looking at children of different ages where you can make change, you can make conclusions about age-related change, but not development in particular. And so for those two reasons, I think this study is really impactful and very cool. I've also wondered about, and, and I don't know, the study here looked at this, or if there have been studies, but eye contact of, of the parent uh, or caregiver with the infant, does that appear to have any sort of effect on language um, gathering? I imagine that it would. So previous research has indicated that parents and infants do engage in joint attention um, using these kinds of sing-songy aspects of speech, like um, infant-directed speech, as they call it. So kind of like you would get when thinking about a nursery rhyme has been shown to be associated with greater infant attention as well. And so these ways in which you can increase the extent to which parents and infants are jointly focusing on an aspect of a conversation or on something in the environment likely facilitates language development as well. There, there are parents who, you know, will read to, um, uh, you know, at, uh, alongside the stomach when uh, the baby is gestating. And, and I wonder, is there any evidence that that kind of an approach, even uh, in utero, has uh, a benefit? There actually is. So there are data to indicate that if parents read specific nursery rhymes or books to their babies while their babies are in utero towards the end of pregnancy, infants after birth actually show evidence of recognizing that language that was presented to them when they were fetuses after they're born. It's really interesting. Very amazing. Yeah. But if a parent is, say, reading the New York Times or something, not the same effect. <laughs> I think it'd be hard to say it'd be the exact same effect. Um, I think it has to do to some extent with the differences between the two stimuli that are being compared. So if, for example, a parent repeatedly reads the same section of text from the New York Times, and then that is contrasted with, for example, a Dr. Seuss book, I think what matters in part is the differences between the text. If they're very dissimilar, you might see um, differential recognition, even if it is the New York Times, for example. Professor DiLiberto, uh, 
so what happens if if you have an infant who wasn't exposed to music or to nursery rhymes in that early developmental window and they get to the seven month period what is 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 there a deficit that can be that can be compensated for at that point or not yeah that's a good question i mean these kind of questions are 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 tricky to study because, I mean, um, you can't uh, study it in a controlled way. You can't um, take children and deprive them of nursery rhymes and see what happens, right? But there are, you know, studies that look at uh, interaction in general, uh, that's for sure, and also looking at different cultures. But um, overall, all cultures have, uh, you know, some form of nursery rhyme. So in, in my opinion, it would make a difference, um, not a difference that would be unrecoverable because i mean we know that the brain of babies is plastic and so if, even you know even if uh, the baby didn't listen to nursery rhymes in the first year they, they would still be able to 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 learn later on but i think it's very important for for having a speedy uh learning curve and but we don't have data on that well and, and um does is the implication here that we need to across the board be encouraging parents of newborns to do this? Because um, I, I wonder how much of this is even um, out there for, for people who not may not be aware of the need to do this on a regular basis. Absolutely. I, I think that is uh, the take-home message. Um, the from what we saw in not in, again not just in this study but in a couple of studies is the the overwhelming presence of these rhythms as as the foundational uh, way a baby would uh, would latch on these rhythms to to segment to understand how to segment the speech so i think that's the take home message um but there is another angle here which is um you know that uh, as as it was said by by my colleague here angela uh, that um um you know, with these metrics, uh, these metrics uh, that, that we're getting are uh, interesting also because we could potentially try to um, predict uh, the uh, deficits that might arise later on in advance. So I suppose I'm flipping your question rather than mm -hmm. uh, saying, okay, what would happen without nursery rhymes and saying with st by studying, by using these metrics, we could try to see if uh, we take participants that have a, a, a particular high level of risk for uh, dyslexia, for example. Dyslexia can, is reliably diagnosed, you know, at six, seven years of age. And the problem is when you start reading and writing. But potentially, the, it could be measurable early on. So we don't know that yet, but uh, that's what, uh, what I would like to test next. We're talking with researcher and professor Giovanni Di Liberto, assistant professor of computer science, Trinity College of Dublin, co-author of the study. Uh, also with us, Angela Lukowski, associate professor of psychological science at UC Irvine. Professor Lukowski, uh, not all parents are necessarily talkative or prone to sing to their infants. What do you think would be a way to better encourage that or support that with new parents? Absolutely. It's a very good point, Larry. So individuals who come from lower socioeconomic status backgrounds are less likely to engage in reading with their children. They're less likely to use a lot of complex sentences when they talk to their babies. And so I think it's important to make people aware of the findings of studies like these and provide them with interventions whenever possible to inform them of the benefits of this kind of thing um, and to encourage them to engage in more talk and more reading with their children.
All right, very good. If you have questions, we're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email a question about language development starting in infancy at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Professor Lukowski, other takeaways that, from a practical matter, you think um, should make their way into advice to parents? I think a practical conclusion from this study, from my perspective, is that talking and engaging with infants maybe is more important than the kind of language that one uses in terms of nursery rhymes or songs. Just engaging with infants is the most important, I would say. Um, infants are inundated with linguistic information, right? So even if parents are not actively engaging with an infant at a specific moment in time, for example, at the grocery store, infants are still hearing language surrounding them. It, of course, is better, more advantageous if that language is directed towards infants, if infants are engaging in joint attention about a shared experience. Um, but I think that the conclusion is that engaging with infants and using languages may be more important than the exact kind of intonation that is used. So I would wager that whether you're having a conversation surrounding a baby about a specific toy or whether you're engaging in a nursery rhyme or singing a song, all of those experiences are beneficial for children. As a parent, I, I just, I talked with our son almost constantly just because explaining, all right, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. It's, mm -hmm. it's funny. And now he talks all the time. So I'm just, it, I mean, it's so, so funny. So much of the approach, I think, how how we parent when it comes to language are the ways in which it was modeled for us growing up whether whether we have a vivid memory of it or not maybe it's maybe it's instinctual as to what we were exposed to but professor lukowski is much of this just passed down generationally I think some of it is. So kind of like you were just saying, Larry, about how you're a talker and your child's a talker, previous research indicates that parents who are more elaborative in their conversations with their children have children who also end up being more elaborative. So certainly I think a lot of what happens in terms of how children come to talk about the past, what they remember about previous experiences, is based on these interactions they have with others in the home. Thank you so much for being with us. UC Irvine Associate Professor of Psychological Science, Angela Lukowski, and my thanks to Trinity College of Dublin, Assistant Professor of Computer Science and co-author of the study published in the journal Nature, Giovanni Di Liberto. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Uh, last hour, I promoted we were going to have a conversation on a topic, which is actually tomorrow. I won't even restate the error I made because it'll just confuse things. What we're talking about next is about surprise parties. I want to hear from you a surprise party that went totally off the rails, that just um, ended up as a disaster, or a surprise party that was particularly elaborate to try and keep it secret and it worked or didn't work. Uh, also, share your experiences, whether you were the recipient of the party, whether you organized the party, or whether you were a guest at a surprise party that was particularly notable. I mean, if it was just a really nice party, that's great. You don't have to call about that. I'm looking for the real dramatic effect of something that happened from a surprise party. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us what happened with a notable surprise party that you were part of. ATcomments at LAS.com. Please include your location and first name. I'll be back in 90 seconds. 
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at Theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about surprise parties. This actually came up in our producers' meeting, and so many people had fun stories to share about parties that they've gone to. We thought this would be fun to hear from listeners. So you can either be a case where you were the honoree at the surprise party or you attended a surprise party in which events uh, were particularly notable. Um, No need to call in if it was just, oh, it was a great party. I want to hear about something that didn't work as planned or was so over the top, so elaborate in the planning that it would be interesting for other listeners to hear about it. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We also have an update on the closure of the southbound Harbor Freeway in downtown Los Angeles, right near the 101. Three lanes have now reopened after the Highway Patrol uh, took uh, a number of the protesters that had blocked the freeway into custody. So three lanes of the southbound Harbor Freeway have reopened. We're at 866-893-5722, and I want to start with our own Sharon McNary, who you hear uh, on so many of our different programs. She is our, our super substitute. Sharon, thank you for joining us. I understand that you have a great story when you were the person who was being honored with the party. What happened? Uh, yeah, I was a student at Cal State Northridge. I was working in the radio newsroom of uh, KCSN. And my little sister, who is, you know, going to school there, too, uh, she stole my address book, and she invited everybody who was in it to a pool party for my birthday. And, um, you know, it was a really, really nice gesture, but what she didn't know was that she got a hold of my journalism address book, not my personal address book. And and so she was inviting all kinds of random sources. She had no idea who they were. Like she told me, well, I invited this person named Sen Cranston. Well, (laughs) Alan Cranston? Alan Cranston, who I'd never spoken to. I'd only spoken to his staffers. He didn't know me at all. A bunch of local politicians, newsmakers, Howard Jarvis, Jackie Goldberg, <laughs> Pete Wilson. I mean, it was so mortifying. And, of course, nobody showed up, you know, who wants to go to some, you know, dumb old college, you know, <laughs> journalist pool party. 
Uh, and none of my actual friends showed up because they didn't know about it. So it, it was pretty normal. Oh, my. Sharon, what if Senator Cranston, U.S. Senator Alan Cranston, showed up with his with his uh, swim trunks for your pool party? That that would have been hilarious. Oh, my gosh. That would have been stranger than weird. That would have been a news story. That would have. That would have. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh, probably, yeah. probably scarred you. So was it, was it a, a fun party with the family members nonetheless? Um, a few people showed up, I mean, with my family, because it was at the family house. But no, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty empty. And, and it, you know, it, it, <laughs> it, there is a moral to this story. If you're going to throw a surprise party, you should have a pretty good grip on who your honorees friends actually are. And not just, you know, oh, I'll just. <laughs> well, and yeah, and if you're if you're using even if it had been your personal address and phone number book, you know, who knows who's in there? You could have former oh, yeah. boyfriends. You could have people yeah. that you'd had a falling out with, but are still in the book or in your contacts on your phone. So that's a pretty risky thing to do. Sharon, thank you for kicking us off. That is that is a great story to begin with. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Michelle in the city of Orange. Good to have you with us. Please share with us your surprise party story. Hi, Larry. I know I need to keep this concise, but I adore you, so I'm glad to be on the phone with you. All right. So years <laughs> ago, my birthday, well, my birthday is June 28th. And years ago, we had an upstairs bedroom, and we didn't have air conditioning, so it was hot up there. So we're sleeping without any, any clothes or any, any blankets or any clothes. Seven o'clock, I heard this knock on the bedroom door, cover up, we're coming in. My husband had organized a birthday party, a surprise birthday party. He did it at 7 to make sure I wasn't out of bed. He had gone to the grocery store at 5.30 in the morning to buy food. He organized for the bakery to open early so somebody could bring the cake in. And uh, all of a sudden I had my pets surrounded with people singing happy birthday. And it was back in the day when they, we had the Imperial Margarine commercial with the crown. That came oh, yeah, in. right, yeah. And somebody came over and put one of those on my head, and I'm trying Fit to for a queen, yes. and sheets. And <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so everybody ended up hanging out all day, and uh, I was lucky enough to have pajamas on by that point, and we just hung out and ate and watched. Have you had any birthday party that could compete with that, people coming into your bedroom at no, 7 in the I, morning? no. And my husband is not known for doing that kind of thing. <laughs> but, uh, turns out he's quite the practical joker. Michelle, thank you. I appreciate it. In the city of Orange, we're asking for stories from surprise parties that were particularly elaborate or dramatic or, as Sharon McNary started us off with, didn't go quite as planned because of uh, some mistakes in the planning process. Hector in Tustin, good to have you with us. Uh, Share with us about your surprise party. Well, Larry, it was a 25th anniversary surprise party, uh, and I was a part of the conspiracy that took my wife and her close friends to the movies. And on the way to the party, uh, I ran out of gas. Oh, no. Um, uh, and the, the guests were passing us on the freeway. Fortunately, my wife wasn't noticing them. She was so upset. Uh, I had to trek to get gas. I got blisters on my feet. We get to the, the party at our home about an hour or maybe more late. Everyone's there. It's a very hot day. 
my wife was very upset with me, so she went into the house through the garage entrance. I went in through the front door to be greeted by a whole house full of guests, many of whom were on the spiraled staircase, and they all yelled, surprise. I wasn't surprised. <laughs> uh, and then they were confused, uh, and my wife came in from the side sweating, um, so everyone was in shock. Um <laughs> It only got worse from there. Oh, no. Believe that because then we were swarmed by bees <laughs> um, in, 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 in the backyard party. Uh, people were, were spilling champagne on the grass, and our dog was lapping it up, and, and along came the bees and everyone. Well, that, need I say more? So this was your 25th surprise wedding anniversary for you to surprise yeah. your wife. This is quite cinematic, Hector. So are are you still married? We are. Uh, it's been 25 years. Managed to survive that. I, I did I did run out of gas one more time after that, but now I fill up at half a tank. Good. You've learned. All right. <laughs> and keep the bees at bay. Hector, thank you so much. In Tustin, we're talking about surprise parties that either have gone awry, like our Sharon McNary or like uh, Hector described, or were incredibly elaborate or just unusual, notable because of the lengths to which they went to keep it a secret or to do something that was so um, monumental that uh, it's a notable event. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I want to hear from you about a surprise party that was particularly notable. I have a friend. He and his wife give surprise parties to each other. It seems like every other year or so. And um, they're always surprised by it. Like, how are you surprised? Your your spouse is always giving you a but but they seem genuinely surprised. I also remember uh, the 65th surprise birthday party for my stepfather. My my mother and her husband, my stepfather, were living up in Lake Tahoe on the North Shore at the time. And my mother uh, rented out a small event center, I think it was in Tahoe City, and invited a bunch of people, people that my stepfather had worked with when he, he was an executive with AT&T and uh, people that had been neighbors at previous places they had lived in the Bay Area and elsewhere. And so it's a big crowd of people were coming, and my mother came up with some ruse to get him to the event center, I think, that because uh, he was president of the local Lions Club. I, th- I think that he had to go look at it for some event, whatever. So he walks in, and he was so shocked, the look on his face. It, we were concerned he was going to have a heart attack. He was so shocked seeing all these people from different aspects of his life and and who he'd known over the years. Anyway, it was a great party, but we were very frightened when he first came in uh, to see his response to it. He was so, so surprised. 866-893-5722. John, 
John in Long Beach, thank you for joining us. You want to tell about a party that you organized? Is that, uh, or, or you, um, or you, oh, you planned it with the person whose birthday it was. How did that go? <laughs> yes, uh, my friend uh, whose birthday it was, he hated, we knew he hated surprise birthday parties. So what he and I did was we came up with a theme, 1950s theme, and uh, he was in on it, except only he and I were in on it. Everyone else who came to the party had no idea that he knew. So when we were, I was pretending to wait for him to arrive, and all of us were in 1950s clothing, hiding. Uh, I said, here he comes. And then instead of opening up the front door, he slid open a sliding door from another room and jumped out and surprised everyone who was waiting for him. <laughs> and, well, did, uh, did folks have a good and time? They were in shock. <laughs> oh, John, thank you so much. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Maria in Rancho Cucamonga said, Our mother's 90th surprise birthday. We had in the middle of the pandemic. I'm the oldest of six. None of us had seen each other in so long. So we said there'd be no hugs, no kisses, everyone in their own corner outside. We got a mariachi band for her. She almost fainted, but she got it together. Nonetheless, that's Maria in Rancho Cucamonga for her mother's 90th surprise birthday party uh, and during the time of the pandemic. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Our, our producer, Lindsay Wright, uh, said she threw a, a, a surprise birthday party uh, for her partner's 25th birthday. All went all right, but uh, she said she thinks she has f- shed a few years of her life planning it. Very stressful. Had to think about every little detail because Trent catches on to everything. He also doesn't really like surprises. So she was concerned that he would gonna, he was going to get mad about it. Doesn't think that she'll do it again. All right, Lindsay. Thanks. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. And just to update you again, uh, in case you were following the closure of the 110 freeway southbound near the 101 in downtown Los Angeles, three of the lanes have reopened. That was after the CHP declared an unlawful assembly with the protesters that were there took them into custody. So three of the lanes have now reopened. The protesters were there to protest the war in Gaza. Uh, all right, let's see. We're going to get uh, another listener up here very shortly to share a story with us on Air Talk. Coming up on NPR's Here and Now, details about the agreement that was reached at COP28, the climate summit that we talked about on the program yesterday. Um There was actually an agreement that came late yesterday between uh, the nations that were there 
to curb the use of fossil fuels. So you'll get details of that coming up on NPR's Here and Now. You'll also get information on Here and Now uh, about the House-led efforts to do an investigation, a formal investigation, um, uh, prior to a possible impeachment of President Biden. This has been going on informally, but now the House is talking about voting to formalize it. Angelica in Pasadena, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Share with us your story of a surprise party. Hi. Yes, um, I was nine months pregnant, and I had told my boss that I was not coming back to work after I had my baby. And they dragged their feet and waited till the last minute to plan my surprise birthday party. Um, But I went into labor the Sunday before the party was planned, so... Of course, I missed the party, and <laughs> no. I had to pick up <laughs> I had to pick up my gift on the way home after giving birth to my daughter. They just waited and too never- long. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Angelica and Pasadena. Let's talk with Mike in Chino Hills. Mike, share your surprise party story, please. Real quickly, we're almost out of time. Yes, uh, uh, about 35 years ago or so, a friend of mine, she organized a surprise party for her boyfriend uh, for a Saturday afternoon or evening. Friday night after working second shift, the boyfriend went to Vegas <laughs> with a bunch of guys. Uh, you know, didn't tell anybody. He didn't know about it. So she couldn't get a hold of him. And anyway, a bunch of people showed up and the surprise gentleman was no show. No guest of honor, but the party went on. He's partying in Vegas, no doubt, too. Mike, thank you so much. Oren in Claremont said, for my father's 70th, we had the surprise. 20 minutes later, his sister was dressed up as a waitress and served him an hors d'oeuvre. We'd flown her in from the Middle East. He didn't know that she would be there. Thank you so much for all the wonderful stories you shared about surprise parties. We appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 9. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.